you had a chance, Roth. You didn't give him the full story. When I, when I contacted Rob last night about shortening the passage, he, he did admit to me, he goes, can I also shorten some of the verses from the genealogy? And I said, no, no. The genealogy is actually central to the text. But he did a good job. He did a good job. <laughs> Let's go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father God, as we come to this text, telling us of things more than 3,500 years ago, we just ask that you do a remarkable thing for us. You help apply this text to our lives today. Help us to see that the struggles of generations long ago still connects to the struggles, the challenges of our own lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, in chapter 5, we found ourselves in a passage where everyone wanted to quit. The elders of Israel wanted to quit. The people of God wanted to quit. And then at the very end, a truly bitter end, in verse 22 and 23, Moses wants to quit. Actually, Moses utters something that is awful, that is evil to suggest. And we read from there, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. And the remarkable thing about this statement from Moses, there's so many remarkable things, but God has already told him several times about what would take place. Actually, God has been telling this family of God since the time of Abraham, 400 years earlier, that there, they would be a people in bondage, a people in chains, a people in slavery, in which he would call them out of and save them and finally bring them into a land. This was always a part of their story. And yet their preconceived ideas of what faith in God should look like, what a life being faithful to God should look like, get in the way where by the end of chapter 5, it's clear everybody thinks God's plan is evil. Everyone wants to be done with him. Even we saw the people of the Hebrews were saying, we're not slaves to, to God. We're not his servants, Pharaoh. We're your servants, so be nicer to us. And, and Pharaoh, because he has a hardened heart, he didn't relent. 
And there is a remarkable thing that greets Moses after he has just accused God of evil. It's a remarkable thing because we know in our own lives when somebody accuses us falsely, when some of us, somebody says something about us that hurts us or shames us or makes us feel uncomfortable, it takes a really incredible work of God to pass over such sins. If I had to define the most common sin I have seen, not just as a pastor, but just in Christian ministry, as a struggle for God's people, myself included, my family, but church family, people I meet, it's something that's been said, something that's been um, claimed that humanity just can't move beyond. Humanity just can't move past. And yet, in the course of God's response to Moses, which is found throughout chapter 6 and all the way to 7, verse 6, by the start of this, he thought God was evil. By the end of it, in chapter 7, verse 6, he is going to be so self-assured about the goodness of God that from the time of seven, chapter 7, verse 6, all the way through passing to the Red Sea, you will never see Moses question the Lord again in Egypt and his divine plan in this kind of way. It seems like for the first seven chapters, that's all we've read. It's going to be put to a stop here today. But also, I can say this, from personal experience, to see Moses say something so evil and awful to God can give a sense of personal relief. I still have a sin of what I said to God when I was a sophomore in high school. I didn't even consider myself a believer, but I said something so awful to God. It still occasionally haunts me. And to read a passage like this, where God passes over the sin of Moses, is just incredibly freeing to the soul. And so, how does God begin that shift? He once again reminds Moses several times through verses 2 through 9, I am Yahweh, or I am the Lord, as it's often translated. I am the Lord, which means I am the God of the past, I am the God of the present, I am the God of the future, I know it all, and I am with you. I am, Moses. I am. And Moses still is struggling to hear it, but God is making clear that he's making himself known, and then he takes it one step further in verse 3. 
He says in verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name of the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now that seems like an odd verse. That verse has a historical reality that we just need to be aware of in it. And around the time of the American Civil War in the 1800s, German scholars, German theologians, got a hold of that verse, and they said, huh, sounds like Moses wasn't aware that God introduced himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Maybe that means the Bible isn't inerrant. Maybe that means the Bible isn't actually a, um, a word of truth. But actually, it's just this collection of myths and mythologies that have been haphazardly put together uh, because Moses doesn't even seem to know that God introduced himself to the patriarchs. And it started in Germany academia. And actually, when I started seminary, my first course was on Genesis through Joshua. And I remember the first assigned reading is essentially reading these scholars try to acts away the validity of the Bible. It's just a collection of myths. And I remember just saying, man, this is going to be my seminary reading. This is going to be awful. But I now know why my professor is preparing. But then I, when I was reading this stuff and thinking of how this started in middle 1800s Germany, and it took about a generation for them to get the youth. And then as they started to get the youth, there started to be the creation of the Nazi party, a godless society that was founded really on the philosophy of Nietzsche. They decided there was no king in this book, and they could do whatever was right in their own eyes. And they gave themselves over to uh, ethnic kind of superiority. And ironically, as Germany continued to descend in their disgust with people who believed in the actual word of God, they became a living example of the type of government that Moses was struggling against in the book of Exodus. And they all, they, the part of the philosophy really started with this verse. And all they needed to do was consult a good even Jewish commentary or a Christian commentary to know what was really being said here. What's really being said here is this. I want you to imagine that God comes up to you today and goes, hey, I got good news for you. One day, in several hundreds of years from now, your family is going to be found owning all the land from Montgomery County all the way up to the Poconos. Great news, right? It's going to take several hundreds of years for this to happen, though. But good news, I'm giving you something now so you can remember this. I'm going to give you 10 plots in the burial plot of Waxel, Old Goshenhoppen Cemetery, and those 10 plots in that region, that's going to give you the confidence you need in order to know that I'm going to eventually rescue your family out of slavery and give them a new land. 
You think, great. Penn Cemetery plots and walks. All right. Boo-hoo. A couple hundred years, my family's going to get. This was the faith that Abraham received, that Isaac received, that Jacob received from God. What's Moses get to watch take place? The land actually given to the people. He gets a different kind of relationship. Moses, you're going to see, even in the midst of your doubts, even in the midst of the, the, the people's doubts, even in the midst of the elders not believing in me, you're going to see this take place. I have prepared a place for you. And you're going to bring the people to that place. And by the way, we Christians, we can fall into the same pattern of skepticism and sin. We currently now live in an age where God says we'll be inheritors of what? The whole earth. We look at the headlines go and go, we're losing. We're going to lose. We're going to lose. This is over. And yet there's God and his promises. And he says, no, no, I'm going to give you the world. The world will be yours. So we even know a little bit about this struggle. The God of past, present, and future can give promises like this and fulfill promises like this. And so he mentions in verse 4 about this land that he's promised, but again, the land would come through a saving from slavery. Moreover, he says in verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Basically, I have had compassion. I have compassion for you. And your circumstances, you keep complaining about the hardship and you don't think I'm a compassionate God who cares for you. And then verse 6 and 7 happen. And verse 6 and 7, in one sense, you could highlight these. These are a, well, not in the Pew Bible, but uh, you could highlight these in one sense. This is a summary of the book of Exodus. But actually, if downstairs you said, this is almost a summary of the entire Bible, I wouldn't have a strong argument against you. What do we read here in these two verses? Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. Now, we as a New Testament church, what do we think about when we think of great outstretched arm and a great outstretched arm redeeming us in an act of judgment? What do we tend to think about? The cross, right? We run to the cross. They wouldn't have run to the cross. I don't think it's a problem for us to run to the cross. We have more revealed to us than they did. But this is what they would have seen. Actually, if I could have changed the cover of your bulletin, maybe I'll make it the cover next week. They actually have this drawing of Ramses with his outstretched arm. And under it, in Egyptian hieroglyphics, it says, Ramses outstretches his arm before a god. Basically, he shows one of the pagan gods of Egypt his power, because he has power like a god. It's, it's, it's something they've discovered. In archaeology, it's an incredible drawing. 
And actually, they've discovered in dozens and dozens and dozens of places that the Pharaoh's power was often seen in outstretched arms. That was a description of his power. And God, like he's going to do with so many images that the Egyptians held as sacred and sacrosanct, he's going to plunder that imagery and he's going to say, I'm going to show you I'm even more powerful when I stretch out my arms in judgment. And so that's the first part. But then we read in verse 7 something remarkable. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now, first, to show you what's going on in verse 7, I want to just take you to two verses in that genealogy. Let's just look at 20 and 23. Amram took his wife, Jochebed. That's just the first half. I'm just reading the first half. Now, 23. Aaron took his wife, Elishabah. All throughout the genealogy, took, 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 took. That's not a coincidence, folks. What does the taking mean? What is when Aaron takes... Elisha, but what does that mean? He married her, right? He made her his bride, his wife. Moses is using the same language for God. God's saying, I'm going to save you with my outstretched arm. I'm going to save you in judgment. And when I do that, I'm going to be wedded to you. I'm going to be married to you. I'm going to take you to myself. I am going to take you to me. Because you are mine. You are mine. And when we start looking at this, we can all of a sudden see how this helps us to understand why this is not only maybe just a central message of the book of Exodus, but the entire Bible. It's so, God is a God who is saving you in order to be wedded to you in love and faithfulness. You know, there's a terrible way to teach the book of Exodus, and it's this. It's the idea that God's married to you. Uh, God, God basically comes to the people of Exodus, sorry, God comes to the people of Exodus in order to give them a land. That's, that happens, but that's not the point. Actually, the first generation, none of them are going to be able to receive the land. Except Joshua and Caleb. None of them. That's not the point. My wife and I have lived in seven places since we've been married lived in a place that was a temporary rental in Vegas infested with cockroaches. Our house in Vegas, I had to like daily, once this weather got warm like it is now, do war on scorpions outside with black lights at night. We had a place that we lived in Sparks, Nevada, where I had just done the neighborly thing. 
of inviting our neighbors over to dinner sometime. We went off to church. Then we, then we took a raft down the uh, Truckee River with our two, two youngest. We only had two kids at that time. And we got home. That same neighbor, neighborhood couple that we were planning dinner with, the husband had shot the wife. She had survived. We've lived in some awful places. We've lived in some wonderful places. We've been in some tough situations in the places we've lived. We've been in some wonderful situations in the places we lived. Is the point of our marriage the places we lived? The point of our marriage is the relationship we've had together. You're saying yes. All right. But <laughs> praise God. No, yes. The relationship we have together. Think of chapter five. Again, they were complaining. They were saying, I don't want this relationship with God. If God, this is where you have me. But true faithfulness, true uh, service to God is a wedding marriage that in good times and in bad times, in sickness and in health, in all seasons, the marriage is sacrosanct. The relationship is to be put up and protected and guarded. And God is announcing that to his people. And so, Moses basically tells God yet again, but hey, he goes to Israel, he tells the people again, and the people don't listen to him again. They don't want to hear this message. And Moses has this moment where while God continues to just say, repeat it over and over, just count it up in the passage. I am, I am, I am, I am. I'm the God of past, present, future. I'm the God of past, present, future. I'm the God of past, present, future. Be faithful. Moses is still doubting here at the beginning of 6. And after Moses speaks in verse 9 to the people of Israel, and they did not listen to him because of the harsh treatment, the harsh setting, that they find themselves in, the Lord then said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How shall Pharaoh listen to me? Because I am of uncircumcised lips. Haven't you figured it out, God, in one sense? Moses says, I'm defiled. I'm not faithful. I'm not faithful in the things I say. I'm not faithful in the things I've been doing. I'm not, I'm not capable of this. I'm not qualified of this. I'm not able to do this. But the Lord still says, go. And then all of a sudden, this passage, which Moses wrote decades, probably, after the fact. Decade. Moses decides to enter in a genealogy. And we immediately all sing, who remember the song, Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby and get ourselves a snack. But this is an amazing genealogy. 
first off, it's a genealogy of the Levitical line. So when I say it's a genealogy of the Levitical line, who is that of? The priests. Starts with Levi, ends with Phineas. Both men of the sword. Levi, we covered about last year at this time. Phineas, maybe we'll cover Lord willing in the future. But it's six generations. What's the problem in a Hebrew's mind with the six generations? What would make it more complete? What would make it better? Seven. Who's going to be the seventh priest? An ancient Hebrew would read this and go, who's going to be the seventh priest? Now, there are other things in the line in this passage, and there are other clans in this passage, but it particularly highlights the Levites. Reuben's talked about in others. I, I, I should mention that, but I'm only going to focus on the Levites. There's another interesting thing about this genealogy when it comes to genealogies in the Bible. It features women. Now, you're New Testament people, so some people could tell me, what's a genealogy that features women in the Bible? Matthew 1, Jesus. That's not the norm. Genealogies are usually kind of patriarchal. Why is it bringing up women? Why are women involved in this? And why does Moses, both at the beginning, before he shares this genealogy, genealogy say he's a man of uncircumcised lips and then afterwards as we as we're going to see in verse 30 says yet again i believe it's verse 30 i'm a man of uncircumcised lips it's an interesting reality here and it's an interesting reality because if you know anything about the levitical line it is a line that cares about the bloodlines and purity cares about the bloodlines and purity. Levites are supposed to marry within the clan of Levi in order to keep the bloodlines pure. And so we're going to look at this. We know that to actually be true from the book of Leviticus. And then we go back to those verses we brought up before. Verses 20 and 23. A Hebrew wouldn't have necessarily run to verse 7 when they read verses 20 and 23. Actually, when they read those verses, they would have been horrified. They would have been horrified at what they read. Because at the beginning of verse 20, we read, Amram took his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Who is your father's sister? Your aunt. Both in chapter 18 of Leviticus and in chapter 20 of Leviticus, that makes your bloodline unclean. Moses just aired the dirty laundry of his family. His father married, the woman who put him in the basket, married his aunt. 
And that has a problem immediately with the bloodline that's going to become the Aaronic priesthood, the high priestly office of the Levitical line. No wonder why the Essenes understood that the Messiah would have to come from the line of Melchizedek, another priestly line in the Old Testament, and which Hebrews in the New Testament talks about. But then we read in verse 23, Aaron took as his wife Elishaba. And Elishaba's name tells us something. It tells us she's actually from a different tribe. She's from the tribe of Judah. And a Levite was supposed to marry within the clan of Levi. And Moses decides to enter this genealogy and after he has just said before the Lord, I am a man of un." circumcised lips. And as this genealogy ends, we have God once again reaching out in grace, reaching out in mercy in verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all I say to you, but Moses said to the Lord again, Behold, I am un of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord answers Moses, starting in verse 1 of 7, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother shall be your prophet. And that verse just sounds confusing. See, I've made you like God, Pharaoh, and your brother a prophet. But see, Moses, up until this point, hasn't gotten the big picture. God wasn't sending Moses because of who he was. God doesn't even argue with Moses when Moses says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips, Lord. He said it twice by way of an exclamation point. God doesn't argue with that. God doesn't argue with who Moses is before God. He is a man of unclean lips before God, absence, the presence and power of God. And yet the reality is, and this is the good news, and this is what God is getting at in verse 1, Moses, you don't understand. Even though you are a man of unclean lips, you go before Pharaoh because when you go before Pharaoh, it's not you he will see, but he will see me through you. Why are we called to share? Why are we called to go to people with hardened hearts towards the Lord? It's not because of who we are. I, I have often people come up to me, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a, that means you're more qualified to go do it than I am in many ways. It's 
not about who we are. But we go. We go even when we know people are going to reject us. We go even if it's, if it's hard for us to go. We go even if we, we doubt it's, it's worth it. In the grand scheme of things, we go because even if they reject the Lord, even if they reject the gospel, even if they reject the truth of who God is, through your going, they might see the God in whom they resist. As I pointed out in the pastoral prayer, there will be nobody on Judgment Day who will say, ah, I didn't see that coming. Didn't see that coming at all. I didn't know there was a God. That's just such a falsehood. Everyone knows. And you go to the people who are hardened to the Lord because you, remo- you know what? You remember that you, like Moses, were one time hardened to the Lord too. You one time, like Moses, looked at the things of God and said, oh, that seems evil. That seems intolerant. That seems not accepting. That seems just mean. That seems like the God, this God in the Bible, we, we just got to deconstruct him. We just got to make this all miss because this God is just miserable. We were those people. When we lack faith, sometimes we even revert to some of those old man issues of doubts and of, of crying out against God and doubting God. But we go because in so going, some might see. You know, some of the Egyptians will be saved through Moses going, but also on Judgment Day, Pharaoh will know the God that he denied. By the way, as a quick aside, because I know I'm coming to the end here, the word Pharaoh means great house. The word Pharaoh see. Shares the same root. In one sense, they're the people of great houses. And did Jesus still go to the Pharaoh seas in his life? Did he still go to those hardened in the gospel? And do we not know that certain Pharisees, like the Apostle Paul, for instance, were saved, though they once were hardened? But others, they, they go to judgment. They go, but regardless of the results, that's not what Im- what's important. What's important is go so that in going, they might see me. Because yes, I know Kevin. Yes, I know congregant of old Goshenop. And yes, I know Moses, that in yourself, you are uncircumcised before me. You are unclean, but I have been a bridegroom of blood to you. I have redeemed you. I have saved you through my outstretched arm upon the cross and through saving you by my outstretched arm. I have liberated you. I have promised you that I am your bridegroom and you are my bride and I will be with you every step of the way, regardless of what kind of place you find yourself in. So go. 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 Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that by the end of this passage, in verse 6, 
Aaron and Moses finally heard and finally understood more the bigger point in their going. And Lord, I pray that you continually remind us as we're out and about in a dying world that our presence there is a presence that's been called to go, to share the good news, to take courage, take courage as your bride to not cower back in fear so let us lord approach individuals with the saving good news with greater boldness because we know it's not found in our own strength it's not found in our ourselves it's not found in our lineage it's not found in who we know but it's found in you who came to know us intimately to take us as your bride. And so let us be found faithful to you in all the things that you have charged us to do in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before the Lord.